Why not start the dance on time? Good evening. Welcome. It's the Mark Riley Show. My name is Mark Riley. Gee, is that is that too repetitious? We got Martin on the board tonight. Martin? What's going on, Mark? How you feel, man? Man, I feel great. It's another day. Yeah, Must it's another day. I got to say, uh, first of all, let me thank the Progressive Radio Network and Gary Knoll for making this time available to me. I love this time to be on the radio. And it's been a long time since I've been able to do this. I've been working mornings before and working all different kinds of stuff. Uh, I couldn't do last week's show because something came up at the last minute and I had to go uh, to uh, a particular event. So my apologies for those of you who were listening for a live broadcast. But we got one tonight. And it's Progressive Radio with a little bit of a twist. And we got a very special guest who's going to join us later on as we talk about Ferguson, Missouri, and Staten Island, New York. A tale of two cities. But we're going to start out talking about ISIS. You all know about ISIS, right? The uh, Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. Uh, they seem to be, if we're to believe the video that we saw, capable of some extraordinarily barbaric conduct. I mean, really barbaric conduct. Now, two of the tabloids in this town, and the town I'm talking about is New York, because this is the Internet, goes all over the place. But two of the tabloids in this town said, go bomb them, blow them up, get rid of them. Time for them to die. Were it that simple? See, they're not, the United States does not have as an enemy in ISIS a nation. It's a bunch of people, all right? And they go back and forth between northern Iraq and Syria. They seem to have, in spite of their barbarism, the ability to recruit people. Uh, People in the U.K. are now saying that the executioner of James Foley might have been a Brit. He spoke with an East London accent. Any of y'all ever see EastEnders on TV? That, That accent. No, I haven't. You have you never seen EastEnders, Martin? No, you should. I would give me a little example of the accent. I I, like I, the I, no, I'm no good at My wife no. is British. She knows okay. how to do those accents. <laughs> me, I, I'd feel like a fool, <laughs> okay? <laughs> but, I mean, this is some serious business here. I don't know what it's going to tell. What, are they going to send SEAL Team 6 over there? Are they going to send NCIS? <laughs> are they going to send Jethro Gibbs? I don't know who they're going to send. But Barack Obama is being pressured quite heavily to do something about ISIS. Now, not long after I first started this show, I said to people that if you're going to, no matter how you deal with these people, and and I'm one that says you're not going to bomb them out of existence, okay? You're not. And boots on the ground is not an option right now. Not an option. The American people go, what are you doing? You know, in, in spite of, you know, some of our Congress people, you know, yeah, yeah, send them, send them, take them out, take them. No, not happening. But in order to deal with these people, however you choose to deal with them, you have to understand their end game, And you have to understand what would cause them to behead a guy on a videotape and then say, we want you to stop bombing or we're going to kill another guy. All right, that's a barbaric behavior. But understand that as far as they're concerned, Americans bombing northern Iraq and Syria is also barbaric behavior. 
That's not to say it's equivalent. I'm not talking about moral equivalence here. All right, because in theory, the Americans are going after extremists, terrorists, whatever. But what is their end game? And we've talked about this before. They want to establish Islamic caliphate across the Middle East, not just in Syria, not just in Iraq, across the Middle East. That is deep, ambitious, and deep. There goes my voice again. Thank you, Martin. There. So that's what they want to do. They want, in their heart of hearts, to establish an Islamic or Islamist, for want of a better term, state across the Middle East, the length and breadth. And, of course, they want to run it. They want to run it according to their interpretation of Islamic law, which, by the way, is not everybody's interpretation of Islamic law. Killing a journalist uh, who we will assume was not armed, I mean, he's been held for two years. That's punk action. That's That's what a punk does. Behead an unarmed guy to make a point that... By the way, the United States, does somebody in ISIS think that Barack Obama is going to take one look at this and say, oh, okay, so you got a problem with us? We're going to stop bombing you. Let's sit down and talk. Forget about it. That's not how politics works. It's not how geopolitics works. Understand that. And I think they understand it. But they're recruiting people. They're recruiting jihadis or wannabe jihadis from all over the world to join their merry band of barbers. (laughs) I'm sorry. Uh, I I guess barbers isn't the proper term. Barbers are people who cut hair. Uh, But people who are engaged in barbaric activity. So what what should the United States do about this? I'll tell you what. And, and, again, I consider myself to be a progressive, okay? But my feeling is... Like, if you're, if you're going to really deal with this, you got to send a limited number of people. You don't tell anybody about it. You don't alert the press. You don't send out some press release or whatever. You send a limited number of guys over there and either literally or figuratively cut the heart out of ISIS. All right? Now, what I mean by that is you go over there and you place them under arrest, or at least you try. And if they resist, you defend yourself. Whatever that turns out to be. And, and, and I don't say that lightly. All right. I, I don't like the loss of human life, no matter who it is. I would just assume they round them all up, bring them here, try them, convict them and put them away someplace. But these folks, are j- jihadists, aren't going out like that. They're just not. So my guess is in order to, you know, I, they talk about this bombing And they say that the execution of James Foley shows that the bombing is working. 
Wow, what a cost to show American might in another part of the world. A guy being beheaded on a video. I don't know. I, I, I'm, something about that bothers me greatly. And I'm not talking about putting large numbers of boots on the ground. This isn't 1990 or, or 2000, whatever. That I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about taking Baghdad or whatever. But somebody, multinational force or Americans, hey, you know, we, we're the most powerful nation on earth. Somebody's going to have to cut the heart out of ISIS. However, that needs to be done. And again, I'm not a violent guy. I'm really not. But acts of barbarism on video should not be tolerated. Absolutely should not be tolerated by a world community. By the way, you can call in and talk about whatever's on your mind. 888-874-4888 is our phone number. 888-874-4888. Coming up, we are going to talk about Ferguson, Missouri and Staten Island, New York. A tale of two cities with a very special guest, an old friend and one of the most brilliant analysts I know, Professor Basil Wilson from Monroe College. But as we move away from Syria and come back to the good old U.S. of A., how are we to contemplate the fate of the governor of Texas, Rick Perry? Yeah! Uh, This guy, see... Usually, when somebody turns themselves in on charges that could put them away for 99 years, they tend to show a little contrition. Rick Perry turned his surrender into a campaign rally, for God's sake. Now, I don't know whether the charges against him are trumped up or whatever. Uh, Every two seconds, if you read some of the stuff he was saying... It's, it's about power. It's the power of the governor. Somebody's trying to usurp the power of the governor. Hey, man, a grand jury indicted your behind. Ain't nobody trying to usurp your power, fool. This has to do, by the way, with the fact that, uh, yeah, here it is, nothing short of an attack on the constitutional powers of the office of governor. He was only processed for 10 minutes, smiled for the cameras, said he went for ice cream after. Wonderful. Hope they got some good ice cream in Huntsville, homeboy. No, I'm, I'm, sorry. I'm sorry. I told you it was progressive with a twist, didn't I, Martin? Yes, you did. <laughs> I mean, what am I supposed to say? Uh, he can be as flip as he wants to be. But he's going to trial on this stuff, unless he cops a plea. And I don't think he's that stupid. He's going to trial. And when you go to trial, there's a 50-50 chance it's not going to work out for you. Now, this is a guy, by the way facing 99 years in the joint, who wants to be the next president of the United States for, I guess, eight years. So that what is that, 80, 91 years he'd end up doing? <laughs> I mean, you know, see, here's the thing. He's been charged by, according to him, baseless political charges. One charge of abuse of official capacity and one charge of coercion of a public servant. They stem from a threat that he made last summer to veto $7.5 million in state funding for the public corruption unit of Travis County District Attorney Rosemary Lemberg, unless she resigned after a drunken driving charge. She refused to step down. Perry did the veto. Now, in, in, in Texas, 
And among Texas Republicans, that's how you do business. You remember Tom DeLay? Anybody? 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 Tom DeLay. Now, Tom DeLay got convicted, but an appeals court reversed his conviction. Texas politicians, during my lifetime, I remember Lyndon Johnson. These people flex. All right? You mess with them, they mess with you. Now, generally speaking, that's how most politicians operate. It's not unique to Texas. Go mess with Andrew Cuomo if you don't believe me. All right? He's going to flex on you, too. But Rick, Pe- Rick Perry has got some... Se- <laughs> Never mind. I'm not going to say that. I-, I know this is not broadcast radio, but there's certain things, you know, that I was kind of brought up not to do. So I'm not going to say what's coming to my lips at this particular time. But he did go out for ice cream, according to... You know, there- there's something vaguely obscene about politicians using Twitter. I'm sorry. It's just like, you know... Talk straight to people, pal. So, oh, I'm going up on Twitter. Hashtag Rick. <laughs> Texas Rick. I went out for ice cream after they indicted me and took my picture. Now, here's a story that's a little bit closer to home. Bill de Blasio, you know him, our esteemed mayor. He's starting to feel it from his, quote, liberal base. You know, the, the, the New York Times and, and many of the other uh, newspapers and media outlets in this town, they, they have a great deal of difficulty using the term progressive. So they say liberal because liberal's easy, easy to spell. L-I-B-R-U-L, liberal. <laughs> OK. Uh, so they spell it that way. They act that way. You know, well, you're a liberal. And Bill de Blasio was a liberal who got elected mayor in New York. I think he'd prefer to be called a progressive. And, you know, the, the whole idea, according to the Times, yet at home, Mr. de Blasio, who swept into office on the promise that New York City could be governed from the left, is discovering that liberalism has its limits. All political philosophies have their limits. All right. If, a, if an extreme conservative, not, not even an extreme conservative, if a conservative was elected mayor of New York City and decided to cut taxes, where do you think the revenue would come from to keep this city going? I mean, I know a lot of people would clap their hands and say, look at their walls and say, oh, man, look at what I got. But the fact of the matter is New York City is taxed because it costs a lot to operate a city and provide amenities for people in a city of 8.2 million people. I had a conversation once, not that long ago, actually, with a woman from L.A. who worked for Stevie Wonder's radio station, KJLH. And, you know, Californians, man, they they look at you like you're crazy if you object to taxes. She said, look, taxes in California are a cover charge. Imagine you're going into a bar. (laughs) All right, well, that'll be 20 bucks plus a $20 cover. That's what you do in California, all right? And in New York, to an extent, taxes are a cover charge. And, you know, uh, Bill de Blasio, uh, how best to put this? Rome wasn't built in a day, okay? Now, you know, there's some things that he's done that I've disagreed with. But then I have never, ever in my entire life seen a politician with whom I've agreed about everything. All right. The closest I ever came was Dennis Kucinich, <laughs> believe it or not, because I, I love Dennis Kucinich, but I don't agree with him about everything either. But any politician that seriously 
projected the idea of establishing a Department of Peace is cool with me. All right, I'm good. But de Blasio, our mayor, is having some trouble because some people among his base, and remember that de Blasio is operating not just as a progressive mayor, but with a relatively progressive city council, probably the most progressive city council last 20 odd years. And make no mistake about it, de Blasio is the most progressive mayor, if you want to say since David Dinkins, because David Dinkins was a progressive, is a progressive. Or if you want to go back further, John Lindsay. That's pretty much all the progressive mayors I can think of. Ed Koch was no progressive. He did some good stuff, but he was no progressive. So de Blasio's getting hit, I guess, uh, as you want to talk about his left flank. He's getting nailed over the broken windows theory. He's getting nailed over supporting Bill Bratton. Uh, uh, Now, somebody did call for him to be thrown under the bus already, Bratton. It's way too soon. Let's not be stupid, okay? Bill Bratton and Ray Kelly do not police the same way. But don't expect cops to be handing out candy on the corner of Port Authority bus store. That's not what cops are here for. Cops are here to keep us safe. Now, cop excesses, shooting people, putting people in chokeholds, and then saying it's not a chokehold unless I say it is. Uh, that's whack. But understand that you know de Blasio is not going to change a police culture that's been around since the end of the Civil War Overnight, he's just not going to do it. It's not going to work for him. I think he's trying. He's going to make some missteps, and he has made some missteps. But they're not, you know, terminal missteps. They're not missteps, I think, that would lead progressives to jump up and say, "Ah, get rid of him. Because trust me, you ain't getting a more progressive guy than de Blasio. All right? Not unless you want to resurrect Eugene V. Debs or somebody. You're not getting anybody more progressive than de Blasio. And and again, I'm not here to sing the man's praises because I don't agree with everything. I believe, for example, when it comes to affordable housing, 80-20 should be (laughs) fitty-fitty. How about that? Half luxury, half not so much. And and by the way, while I'm at it, before we go to our guest, this poor door crap. And and see, here's the thing. And for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, probably a lot of you outside of New York do not. A lot of these luxury buildings that have set aside a certain number of apartments as affordable for people that don't make like a zillion dollars or have trust funds, they have separate entrances for the folks that can't afford to walk in by the waterfall in the front. They are called euphemistically poor doors. They are the antithesis, in my judgment, of what New York has stood for since it became the five boroughs in 1898. Poor doors, can I say this, Martin? They suck. How about that? They suck. Of now, course you can say. <laughs> here's the thing. People who live in those places and who have like a one-bedroom apartment for 900 bucks a month, they'll say, yeah, give me the poor door. I don't care. I'm paying one-third of what the rest of these clowns are paying. Yeah, give me the poor door. That's not the point. It's not the point. What's next? Poor doors on the subway? <laughs> You're going to tell people, well, unless you have a certain income, you can't come in here. Go to the back of the train, chump. Poor doors at restaurants? I can see it now. Walt Clyde Frazier has a block-long restaurant on 10th Avenue. So he's got two entrances. 
So you're going to have a poor door for people that are ordering appetizers <laughs> and, and a door for everybody else? Come on. Poor doors suck. It's as simple as that. That's just my feeling. Uh, we're going to take a very quick break. It's 20 minutes after the hour, 6 o'clock. I got to tell you, I'm having a ball. How about that? And we're going to come back, and we're going to talk about a tale of two cities, Ferguson, Missouri, and Staten Island, which is, of course, last I checked, is still part of New York City. And we're going to talk with our good friend, Professor Basil Wilson from Monroe College. But first, a little night music, perhaps, Martin? Duke Ellington, Charles Mingus, and Max Roach. A very volatile combination. Playing that old chestnut, Caravan. Right now, it's a pleasure to welcome to our our microphones our good friend and one of the most brilliant analysts and academics I have ever known. Monroe (laughs) College, let us say good evening to Professor Basil Wilson. How you doing, sir? Good evening, Mark Ratty. Good evening. How you been? I've been well. Now, I know, Basil, you've been following what's going on in Ferguson, Missouri, and what's going on in Staten Island, New York. Uh, Should New York be patting itself on the back because we don't have people in the middle of the street, like, quote, rioting, unquote, like they do in Ferguson? Because a lot of people are patting themselves on the back in New York and saying, well, it didn't didn't happen like that here because we're New Yorkers. Is the pat on the back justified or something? Well, I I think um, what occurred in Staten Island with um, Garner, was really abominable in the sense that it really personifies the dehumanization of another human being. Because Ghana really made it quite clear that he could not breathe. And um, the police were indifferent. The EMS who were on the scene were indifferent. And I think he, his life would not have been lost or would, would not have been taken so miserably if there was some response to the pleas that he was making. Um, you know, people don't just give up their lives like that. I mean, this mm-hmm. is somebody who is a, um, a grandfather. He's a husband. He had a lot to live for. And um, he was, in fact, pleading for his life. And this chokehold, as you know, um, Mark, has been outlawed in New York City from 1994. Yeah. So part of the problem that we really have is a police culture that has a sort of pit bull quality and that is so preoccupied with imposing rules and following broken windows slash zero tolerance that it often loses its humanity in the process. Basil, is this uh, pit bull mentality, in your judgment, is it race-based? Yes, I mean, unquestionably, it is race-based. It's race and it's class. And one of the interesting things about police training is that when a young police recruit goes through the academy and he gets his training, once he gets out on the street, the veteran police officer tells him, forget everything that you learn. I am going to teach you what policing is about. And so that's part of the problem. There's a culture, especially practiced in urban communities, especially practiced in black African-American communities, that is, in fact, quite contemptuous of black males, and you see that being manifested 
on a daily basis. I mean, sometimes we react because of um, Eric Garner's death or the um, the Brown's uh, Michael Brown, murder, yeah. Michael Brown's murder. But there's a lot of humiliation that takes place under the radar on a daily basis, based upon this pitbull culture that we see manifested in urban communities. Where the presumption is that a black man or even a black woman cannot respond, cannot speak back to a police officer. So there's a certain totalitarian aspect to the way people behave because they presume they have the right of being a police officer, which I think, if we are to humanize a society, must change. And this is why I think that part of the, um, the solution is really professionalizing policing in the sense that you, we must have educational prerequisites in order for somebody to be given a 9 millimeter gun that has control over life and death. Uh, Basil, don't they have to have college now? No. Uh, well, what NYPD requires at this juncture is that you need to have 60 credits or two years of military service, mm-hmm. which I think is really insufficient, especially. I mean, that was something that was introduced by Ben Ward, who was the first black police commissioner in New York City, who was appointed on the couch. And uh, I think in an age of open enrollment um, and where there's much more access to higher education, the prerequisite for becoming a police officer should at least be a baccalaureate degree. And for people serving in supervisory capacities, it should be at least a master's degree. I mean, when you look at somebody like Thomas Jackson, who is the chief in, um, in, in Ferguson County, it's quite clear that this is somebody who lacks leadership, who um, really doesn't even understand what it is to be a police chief. And I would imagine that that has a lot to do not just with his absorbing of police culture, but that he's poorly educated. Yeah, interesting point. And when we talk about Ferguson, uh, there's some numbers, Basil, that kind of trouble me. In the last municipal election in Ferguson, 12% of the overall population participated, 6% of the black community participated. This is a town that is two-thirds, 66% black. And out of the 53 officers in Ferguson, three of them are black. It seems to me like those numbers kind of buttress themselves. Like, if more black people voted, maybe you'd have black. And by the way, I think there's one member of the Ferguson City Council who's black out of, I think, six members. In a town that's two-thirds black, how does that work? Well, I think what explains that is that there's a tendency in the black community to presume that the only elections that matter are national elections. I mean, blacks come out in, in, in sizable numbers, even, that, even sometimes greater than that of whites, in voting in presidential elections or national elections. And one thing that is happening in a lot of white communities is that the emphasis is now being placed on local elections or state elections. I mean, a lot of the gerrymandering that has taken place, why the Republicans control the House of Representatives, has to do with the fact that they control state houses, and then they can gerrymander in, in, in order to ensure that they can maintain power in the House of Representatives. That doesn't work that well in the, in the, um, in the Senate. So I think that one of the things that hopefully um, Ferguson County will, in fact, produce an awakening 
to a recognition on the part of the black community that local elections do matter and that you cannot be indifferent to who is the sheriff, who is the police chief, who is your city council. You have to be involved in municipalities because a lot of decision-making is made at that level. Our guest is Professor Basil Wilson from Monroe College, uh, an extraordinary analyst, educator, theoretician, bunch of stuff. But, uh, Basil, i got to ask you, um, in, the, in Ferguson, in the immediate aftermath of, of Michael Brown's killing, there was a lot of anger, obviously, on the part of the African-American community. But we've seen over the last 24, 36 hours pushback from other people who are, in the main, not African-American, supporting the police officer that shot Michael Brown. Uh, Darrell Wil- I think his name is either Darrell or Darren Wilson. Darren, Darren Wilson. Darren Wilson, yeah. Um, what do you make of, of that pushback, and, and does it mean that from a media standpoint, people now are kind of covering it equally? You know, Mark, one of the things that is quite disconcerting is that I think the Pew Research Center did a poll recently, and on matters of criminal justice, the white community is convinced that the criminal justice system is fair and just, and the black community is convinced that the criminal justice system is in fact unjust. So you get this serious divide racially over the efficacy or inefficacy of the criminal justice system. And one of the things that you see, and I think that is a reflection of the inability of the society, at least white society, to recognize the humanity of black people, is that people now are going to find a way to rationalize what Darren Wilson did. (laughs) I think the evidence is clear. I mean, the presumption that somebody who was shot and turned around could have the insanity to charge a police officer with a gun. Incidentally, one of the things that we should point out, that the United States Supreme Court in 1985 in a case called Tennessee versus Ghana, made the law of the land that a police officer could not shoot after a fleeing suspect unless he constituted immediate danger to others. So what Darren Wilson did in shooting after um, a fleeing suspect was, in fact, reckless endangerment. And, in fact, if it, I mean, what, what clearly... Um, the young man recognized is that he would, in order to save his life, he had to turn around and, in fact, surrender. And if you look at the bullet that went through the top of his head, I mean, somebody who is 6'4", the only way that bullet could have penetrated the top of his head is because he was already falling down Mm -hmm. after having been shot by the other five bullets. So I think the notion now that he was about to attack the officer. All of that is just absurdity and an attempt to create some kind of reasonable doubt in order to exonerate Darren Wilson. Do you think, uh, Professor Basil Wilson, uh, that uh, much of the protests that have been going on in Ferguson, which are now, by the way, uh, kind of being divided in terms of people talking about, quote, outsiders and outside agitators, and, I, you know, I don't know whether the criminal uh, criminal element are outside, inside, or whatever, but I remember, you know, w- w- when I was a kid, hearing outside agitator attached to names like Martin Luther King and others uh, who were the Freedom Riders, Goodman, Cheney, and Schwerner, 
uh, you know, uh, outside agitators sometimes can be a, a, a very uh, a, a term that's fraught with a, a, a fraught with a lot of discord and fraught with a, with a lot of controversy. Uh, I think they said one fourth of the people they arrested the other night were from outside of Ferguson County. Does that surprise you? And what do you make of this outsiders thing? Well, I think it's, I think it's an absurd charge in the sense that, you know, a lot of those folks are coming outside of Ferguson County, but adjacent communities. There are a multiplicity of adjacent communities which suffer the same kind of a roughshod treatment by police officers. And to me, what we're really seeing is a beautiful thing because we're seeing the collective mobilization of the community. In an age of extreme individualism, where it's very difficult to create a movement, out of this tragedy, we have seen people marching, um, willing to um, face up to tear gas, even tanks, for 11 straight days because of the extreme nature of this tragedy. So I think that is a commendable trait. I think that is something that, you know, it, it will create some kind of white backlash as what occurred in the 1960s. But these are the kinds of actions that I think are beneficial in the long run to American civilization. That is a contribution that black people have made to American civilization in terms of humanizing it. And I think Michael Brown's murder is another example of pointing out and highlighting, making salient the kind of um, collapse of community relationships between the African-American community and police officers. Basil, what about this whole notion that businesses are suffering, uh, kids may not be able to get to school because of all this unrest? I, I, there seems to be a tremendous pressure uh, that is kind of opposed to what you're saying uh, in calling it a beautiful thing. Uh, do you think that that pressure will eventually will out? Well, I, there's no reason why the education system cannot be reopened. I think one of the things that occurred last night is that even though you had a demonstration, there was no violence as such. Um, you don't really want anybody looting or burning down businesses. That is detrimental to the well-being of a community. It is de detrimental to the people who have capital investment in that community. But I think the if, you know I, I think the majority of people demonstrating are committed to peaceful assembly and to peaceful mobilization, and I think that dramatization of that murder had to take place and should continue to take place until the wheels of justice begin to turn. I think the way Central County has responded to it was really, in fact, to encourage the demonstration. I mean, they could easily have had a preliminary investigation, not go the route of a grand jury, which is much more time-consuming, and I think there is enough evidence to really um, indict the police officer, give him his due process in terms of a trial. I mean, nobody wants him to be railroaded. Everybody wants the evidence to be presented in a fair and objective manner. But there's no question that there is enough evidence for an indictment to take place. I, I want to step back a little bit and talk about something that I've heard folks talking about, uh, particularly in Ferguson. Because if you look at the images, you see police in what appear to be tanks uh, and very sophisticated, what I assume is military-style hardware in many cases. And I know that we have some of that same kind of military-style hardware. We don't see it as often here in New York, but we do have it. 
Is there a danger in your judgment, Professor Basil Wilson, that the police is becoming too highly militarized? Well, the more a police department becomes alienated from a community, it is a greater the higher level of militarization that will take place. Um, I think that is detrimental to all concerned. I think effective policing, especially democratic policing, mm-hmm. remember we live in a democratic society, and so therefore you can't replace democratic policing with totalitarian policing or highly militarized policing. Policing in a democratic society has to be democratic. One has to be cognizant of people's constitutional rights, and one has to ensure that there is an open, ongoing dialogue between community and police. One of the things that has happened, and this is one of the dangers of zero tolerance, that you can become so um, obsessed with imposing law and order that you easily trigger disorder. Mm-hmm. And I think that there are other ways in which you can effectively um, reduce um, criminality. And in fact, you know, NYPD. Um, has been quite instrumental in using empirical measures and scientific measures to reduce the crime rate. But I think where the danger exists, and I saw that in, um, when Kelly was a commissioner, if the presumption if the, that the crime rate has gone down only because of the police, then you encourage fascist-like policing, because the reduction in, in, in the crime rate, in violent crime throughout the country, and particularly in New York City, is not solely due to the result, due to the, um, the, um, the efforts of the New York Police Department. There are other things that have been affected. The increasing number of young black men who are, gra- who are graduating from high school, increasing numbers who are going on to college, changes in, um, in drug markets, um, changes in terms of relationships between males and females, the influx of women into the labor force. There are many other factors that have contributed to making New York City far more wholesome. If you look from the 1970s when the city fell apart, I mean, you're, I mean you, we were living this mark. Yes, we when were. When the city went bankrupt, when they laid off over a third of police officers, laid off about 45,000, you gave pink slips about 45,000 civil servants, laid off school teachers. The city fell apart in the 70s and in the 80s. And that had a lot to do with the fiscal collapse of the city, which led to a sort of degeneration of an emisceration. That was halted in the 1990s. And that's when you began to see the falling rates of crime. So it's not just due to the sort of scientific methodology that comes that develop, but there are other measures taking place, certain socioeconomic changes taking place in the city. That was a big factor in um, plunging the, uh, the murder rate from 2,262 in 1990 to about 313 in 2013. That's an extraordinary reduction, but I'm glad you went back to the 1970s uh, because I want to close w- with this question. You and I both were around when Clifford Glover was killed, when Randolph Evans was killed, when Arthur Miller was killed, when uh, Eleanor Bumpers were killed, was killed, Patrick Dorsmond, uh, Anthony Baez. I, I mean, there's a list. Michael Stewart. Uh, 
the question I have for you is, I mean, I look at these two situations. And, and right now, both in, on Staten Island, uh, Dan Donovan is, is uh, the, the Staten Island DA is convening a grand jury. Uh, it seems like there may be the embryonic stages of a grand jury created out in Ferguson. But I, I don't know why, at the end of all this, Basil, I feel so pessimistic that either one of these cops are going to be found guilty of anything. Or am I just a pessimist? Yeah, I think there is that fear because, I mean, one thing that you're seeing definitely in Ferguson is that the release of the surveillance tape, the leak that uh, Michael Brown had marijuana in his body, or that it was an attempt to create doubt. The fact that there are some people coming forward to say that Michael Brown was plunging at the police officer. That is an attempt where the, um, the prosecutor and members of the police department have circled the wagon and are trying to create doubt in order to exonerate Darren Wilson from what he has committed. But I think what the Darren Wilsons personify, and this is what we have to work um, to really negate, is that he represents the non-professionalization of policing. Because whatever the encounter that took place between Michael Brown and Darren Wilson, Darren Wilson took it personally and presumed that he had the right, as somebody who was all-powerful, to shoot and kill somebody who was in a position of powerlessness. So one of the things that we're looking at, you, you and I know, um, Mark, that you can't practice racism unless you have power over people. True. And one of the problems that we're having is the power of people in the criminal justice system where they can um, just use that power over people who are presumably powerlessness, who are powerless. So I think the, the struggle then is, in fact, to ensure that if you have this collective mobilization, if you have black folks fighting back, then it's much more difficult for people to presume that we are powerless and that they can take any kind of action, um, whether it is murder, whether it is chokeholds, in order to achieve their limited objectives. Professor Basil Wilson, it's always a pleasure to talk with you, an honor to talk with you. And please, don't be a stranger. I'd love to have you back on again soon. Okay, thank you, Mark. You take care. Have a good one. Professor Basil Wilson, he is at, he's actually, uh, and, and I have his title here, believe it or not, uh, he is the dean of the, uh, what is it, criminal justice studies? At uh, Yeah, here it is. He's the dean of the Graduate School of Criminal Justice at the King Graduate School of Monroe College. Always great to talk with him. Uh, our phone number, 888 888 Eight eight. Do we we had somebody still holding on? All right, we got Mike on the line. Mike, good evening. How you doing, my friend? Hey, Mark. Great to talk with you again. Hey, it's Michael S. W. How you been, man? The one and the only. <laughs> I have real serious concerns. What's going on with this grand jury in the Eric Garner case, and what's going on in Ferguson? I got a big scoop regarding Ferguson, but before I get to that. My concern with the Eric Gardner case and this particular DA, who I understand has is very pro-police and close ties with the police All department. DAs, Michael, let me explain something to you. All DAs have, have close ties with the police because it's the police that help the DAs make their cases. I, I, knew, I know you were going to say that, but the DAs also have an obligation for truth and justice. You're absolutely and, right. You're right. Yeah, they do. And, and should not. 
be tolerating or even vouching for any cops that are crossing the line because that degrades their integrity as well. Oh, of course, they never thought about that. So you're thinking but, Pantaleo here on Staten Island crossed the line? Well, well, it's not just that. I find it very peculiar how the gentleman who video recorded the police choking, and I'm strongly saying choking. Oh, Ramsey Order. Ramsey Order, thank you for reminding me of his name. Video records the cops choking Eric Gardner to death and made that video viral. And then just um, within 48 hours later, cops are going to um, come up to him with a... With, to busted me, him a and busted his girlfriend. And, and busted the girlfriend. But the girlfriend and the mother saying that he was set up because they've been targeting him as retaliation ever since he released that video. And so I want to question the DA as to how in the world is it you're so quick to secure an indictment against what was perhaps the best prosecutorial witness against these cops, but yet you're so dilly-dallying in trying to get an indictment against the cop for choking. You know, there so, is Michael, a you're, you're, not, you're not buying Dan Donovan's statement that he's going to go where the evidence takes him? I don't trust him with a 50-foot pole. You know what I'm saying? Now, i, I got to ask you, though, Michael, is there a DA you do trust? Is there a DA you do trust? Yeah. For one thing, Robert Johnson here in the Bronx. You trust him? I trust him because he, he, he follows what exactly um, what I have pointed out, that, yes, DAs try to work close with cops, but they will not tolerate anybody crossing the line. And Robert Johnson never hesitated in prosecuting you know, bad cops. He had a problem getting convictions because of the way the judges have been or even the union president the police union president might have been tipping the scales. But let me tell you something about Ferguson. And I learned this from another progressive radio talk show host here in New York City who was down there last week for a day or two. And he shared some interesting information. And his suspicion and my suspicion alike that the troublemakers down there are pretty much plants either from the Ferguson police or maybe right-wing pundits, or a combination wait, 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 of both. Now, now i got to tell you, Michael, and, and thanks a lot. Let for me explain, let me explain, let me explain. The thing is that he observed the police chasing these people, and let's say if they were going down south on one particular road, and then the troublemakers run up close enough to the actual peaceful protests or near them, the troublemakers take a turn and going east, but the... Um, but the cops that are chasing them are now going near the um, peaceful protesters and going west. The thing is, like, you stop pursuing the troublemakers and then you want to turn around and confront the, um, confront the peaceful protesters and come up with the so then you're, saying, what you What you seem to be saying, Michael, and, and thanks a lot for the phone call, uh, it, it seems like you're saying that you thought the cops, uh, I, I don't know if you could say they were planting people, but it sounds as if you're saying, well, uh, you know, maybe there's more to some of these, uh, 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 quote, criminal element uh, than we are being told here. And, and that's, a, uh, you know, it's a possibility. I don't know. You know, uh, I, I'm pretty suspicious myself, but I don't know that to be a fact. So I don't want to speculate and say that, you know, the cops planted these people or whatever. Um, when people get out in the street and start protesting, it does present an opportunity for certain people, okay? I saw this happen here in New York more than once. 
where there were peaceful protesters and there were people that were breaking into people's stores and taking every pair of pants they could get because they took advantage. There are always going to be people in society that take advantage. Now, is that a mark of the majority of the people who are protesting in Ferguson, Missouri? Absolutely not. They got a legitimate beef. They got a legitimate beef. And it is not their responsibility. It is not the responsibility of peaceful protesters to deal with those who are not peaceful. Okay? That, that's, that's whack. And you know that there have been a couple of journalists that have gotten busted out there, which, in light of what happened to James Foley, I think we ought to take a little seriously, just a bit, perhaps. One guy was on the ground, tear gas. They were pouring milk all over. I didn't know milk was an antidote to tear gas. But, yeah, they poured milk all over his face. So, you know, uh, I'm not sure. And, and, you know, the footage that I've seen of these cops, like, wading into people, I'm not sure they knew who they were going after. It just looked like they were going after whoever they could get. But, again, people will take advantage. Just part of being a human being. I hate to say it, but it happens. It happens. And, and see, the, the, the inference sometimes is, well, the peaceful protesters, they have a responsibility to stop the... No, they don't. No, they don't. They're not law enforcement. They ain't got no batons or pepper spray. <laughs> what are they supposed to do? Duke it out with, with, with cr- the criminal element on the streets of Ferguson? That's absurd. How about you get more than three cops out of a police force of 53? You want somebody to deal with the criminal element? I admire that guy, Captain Johnson, who, by the way, is not part of the Ferguson police force. Otherwise, he'd be one third of the black people on the Ferguson police force. I give him credit. He walked out. He walked out into the middle of the belly of the beast and dealt with it. That's what law enforcement should be about. 888-874-4888 is our number. we got a little bit of time left. we got about 10 minutes or so. So if you want to talk, and you don't have to talk about that, you can talk about whatever's on your mind. I'm a free thinker. I try to be a progressive. And I am energized by being in this time slot. I really am. Beats getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning, Martin, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Anything's better than that. <laughs> yeah. When I had to work at you know 6 o'clock in the morning, I was up at 3, compiling news. And... uh you know, I still get up early, but I, I like, I love this particular time slot. Macy's. Y'all know about Macy's? Remember the old days? We're just a part of your life. Well, if you're black or Latino, you're bigger. <laughs> they were a bigger part of your life than you might have thought. Now, full disclosure, back when dinosaurs roamed the earth, I worked in Macy's. I didn't work on a selling floor. I did not work security. Security is not something I do, although I did it for a couple of years as a security guard. But I, it's not my thing, all right? I'm not using batons on people. It's just not my thing. Um, I was on a non-selling floor back then. And, you know, the, the people that worked at Macy's in those days, they were like family, man. We used to go play basketball together. We used to party together uptown. It was, it was, it was an interesting, very interesting place. But Macy's, after an 18-month investigation... An investigation by Attorney General Eric Schneiderman, who, in this case, was no joke. Macy's is going to pay a $650,000 fine and hire an independent monitor to address complaints that, 
quote, minority. And, and see, this is the funny part. In New York, there ain't no minority. <laughs> Blacks and Latinos ain't no stinking minority. You know, when have you ever seen black and Latinos lumped together and called majority shoppers? <laughs> you don't see it. You know, and, and uh, you know, I'm not trying to be chauvinistic or anything, but come on. So uh, these shoppers faced heightened surveillance and in some cases wrongful detention. Now, this happened at the same store I used to work, the flagship. Five minutes. No, I'm, I'm sitting in. No, I'm really kidding. Uh, the flagship store, the Herald Square store in Manhattan, all right, the big one, the one with the 6th Avenue side and the 7th Avenue side, which, by the way, are not on level ground with each other. You've got to go up steps to get to the 6th Avenue side. Anyway, uh, they reviewed the loss prevention procedures employed by Macy's, as well as allegations that black and Latino shoppers were unfairly targeted. The inquiry found, and this is the important, this is why they paid $650,000, which is chump change to Macy's, but hey, you know, what the heck. Uh, The inquiry found that Macy's detained African-Americans, Hispanics, and other minorities for allegedly shoplifting at significantly higher rates relative to whites. And that settlement agreement was released today. Now, when stuff like this happens, I always love to hear the response of the people paying the money, all right? A, because they will never, ever, ever, ever admit that they did anything wrong. What? Y'all paying $650,000 for profiling black and Latino shoppers? We didn't do anything, though. Not really. Here's what Macy said about shelling out more than a half million dollars. Quote, serving customers is what we are all about, and we will continue to work tirelessly to ensure that all customers feel welcome at Macy's and are treated with respect. (laughs) Sorry. I can't help it. I can't help it. You know, uh, I could have done a better job writing some mea culpa than that. Uh, We really only have five minutes left? Because I do have a segment that I like. There's some other stories that I could talk about, but there's a segment that I have that's called To the Ridiculous, all right? which goes from from the ridiculous to the sublime. Well, this stuff is ridiculous, okay? We live, as we've been told since 2008, in a post-racial society. A post-racial society. Unless, of course, you happen to be in certain parts of Mississippi. A sheriff down there says a man was beaten and shot two weeks after he called the cops to report a cross-burning in his yard. That's right. A cross burning in his yard. And by the way, you know, you burn a cross. Are you trying to say that you're a Christian when you burn a cross? You morons. Anyway, uh, investigators are trying to figure out whether the attack was prompted by people being upset that the man was visited by his mixed race grandchildren. So you're going to dog out some kids by burning a cross on a guy's lawn. What's he supposed to do? Kill him? What's he supposed to do with him? Not have him over? What country do these people think we live in? Is this like 1950-something? Orville Faubus is gone. George Wallace, gone. All of them. Bull Connor, gone. All of them, gone. And yet, there's this. Now, by the way, I didn't even know there was a Raleigh, Mississippi. I knew there was a Raleigh, North Carolina. But there's a Raleigh, Mississippi. This guy, Craig Wilson, had been shot in the stomach and was beaten. And reports from relatives said that the confrontation started between Wilson and a guy named Jeff Daniels. 
Among other things, the sheriff said investigators were checking whether it might have been connected to people being upset from visits from Wilson's mixed-race grandchildren. Craig Wilson's daughter is white. Their father is black. Oh, my God. What happened to the miscegenation laws in this country? And and y'all want to talk? You can talk as much as you want about it being post-racial. I mean, we're up here in New York. Uh, There's not that many lawns people can burn crosses on because we're an urban environment. But don't think sometimes you sit back and think about it. People people got some stuff in their heads. Remember all those people that said Obama was a Kenyan? (laughs) You remember all of that? And he wasn't an American? And they needed to see his birth certificate? Like they were proofing somebody at a stinking club? You remember all that? Absolutely. Donald Trump, I remember. Yeah, that, yeah. that moron. Paid billions of Donald dollars Trump. to see it. Yeah, uh, and, and uh, he's getting ready to walk away from another one of his casinos. I wish he'd walk away from that god-awful comb-over he has on his head. But that's another discussion for another day, because I'm not a big fan of Donald Trump. I'm not a big fan of poor doors. I'm not a big fan of racism. I'm not a big fan of homophobia. I'm not a big fan of anti-Semitism. I'm not a big fan of any of that crap. Because I've lived a fair amount of time on this planet. And I know, I know that we can do better. That's the bottom line here. We can do better. Then to have a guy in Mississippi beat up on account he's got grandchildren who are partly black and partly white. What is wrong with people? I mean, maybe I say that too much on this show, but I can't figure it out. It is utterly perplexing to me how people can walk around and harbor this kind of hate for other people. Other people ain't bothering them. These people ain't bothering them. What's the problem? Yo, wake up, smarten up. You want to burn a cross? Burn it in your living room. (laughs) Show your good Christianity. Go to church. Do something positive for people. Help somebody with a stroller up a flight of stairs, for Christ's sake. I'm oh, sorry. I don't want to say Christ's sake. I actually do go to church, ladies and gentlemen. It, I mean, it's ridiculous. That's why I put it in this segment. Now, there are other things. Rick Perry's ridiculous, too. But, you know, he wants to be president. So we may have a ridiculous president in a couple of years. You never know. But this... This is just like, I hear music in the background. Does that mean I have to leave? Martin's putting me out, y'all. He's saying, yo, you got to, you can do whatever you want, but you can't do it here. So I'm out, all right? My thanks to Martin. Did Casey leave already? Yeah, right, thanks to Casey, too, just in case he's listening. We'll be back to, tomorrow. We'll be back next Wednesday, live from 6 to 7 p.m. This is the Mark Riley Show. It has been my honor to be here with you. Thanks to Gary Nolan, all the good folks at the Progressive Radio Network, PRN.FM. Take care.